is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name is Matt Brand. Welcome to the program. It is the middle of the wet season, but mustering pilots, it seems, aren't getting much of a break. The skeleton crew of pilots we've had on have been uh, really busy as well, so normally they get a bit of a reprieve, but they're all flying, including Christmas Day. Yeah, what's keeping pilots busy at Helimuster NT? You'll find out soon. What does the year ahead look like for farmers in terms of getting overseas workers in from the Pacific Islands? The Minister in Charge, Pat Conroy, will be on your radio in just a moment. And tell me, have you ever thought about packing in your day job and becoming a worm farmer? This couple did. So he said, do you want to buy a farm and start growing worms? And so I came home and have a chat with Ellie and we said, well, let's give it a go. Yep, not only did they buy a worm farm, but now they're expanding. The magical, magical world of worms. Coming up on today's Country Hour. We're broadcasting right across the Territory on the ABC, streaming online, and g'day there if you are tuning in via the podcast. It has been more than two and a half years since the Federal Court ruled in favour of the cattle industry's class action against the Federal Government's suspension of the live export trade to Indonesia in 2011. Two and a half years since that decision. Now, to jog your memory, here's a little snippet from June 2020 of the Territory's Tracy Hayes speaking to media after the Federal Court's decision. I am delighted to say, when presented with the facts, the judge got it right. Government needs to be accountable for the decisions it makes. This decision makes government and decision makers more accountable and highlights the dangers of knee-jerk reactions and political stunts. This will be a progression of the law, a new precedent in the law as it relates to misfeasance in public office. That's Tracy Hayes back in June 2020. So it's been more than two and a half years since that decision and yet only the lead claimants in the class action, the Brett family, have received compensation. For everyone else involved in that class action, where is the money and what is going on? Well, today on the Country Hour, we do have an update for you. According to class action facilitator Tracy Hayes, the Commonwealth has now made an initial offer, but it's been rejected. Yes, I can report that we have received an initial offer um, from the Commonwealth. Uh, look, that offer, it's not an acceptable offer and um, we're, and uh, is, has been rejected um, by us. Uh, so essentially, we're at the table now uh, negotiating to um, achieve a compromise position. Now, the negotiations primarily uh, are centred around the size of the market uh, had the the ban uh, not been uh, put in place. So uh, we're at the table uh, negotiating and, uh, and hoping to achieve a compromise position. The offer from the Commonwealth, are you able to share with us what that was? Look, I'm not in a position to disclose uh, 
to disclose that figure. But what I can say is the negotiations, uh, we, we, we're, set it, we're running a parallel uh, process. Uh, the, uh, the quantum or the size of the market had the, not, had the ban not been made is a really important um, uh, piece of information um, that will ultimately... Um, inform the the compensation payable um, there's two processes underway one is a court process and we're bound obviously by the court dates and um, and um, and the process as directed by the courts concurrently to that we've also set up uh, an expert panel um, that's will be or is focused on um, pulling together the evidence and um, the information to substantiate the the quantum or the size of the market that uh, we um, believe was the you know the number um, of of cattle capable for export at that time. So there's uh, two processes are underway, and uh, as well as uh, obviously we're at the table negotiating um, actively with the Commonwealth. It's previously been reported that the end sum could be around $1.2 billion with interest on top of that. Is that still the story here, Tracy? Look, Matt, it's difficult to say uh, what the end sum's going to be. Certainly, um, the, the loss figure has... Uh, you know, he's close to that number and what where we're at now is uh, agreeing on um, how that loss figure is calculated and, and the the factors that um, determine that. So, yeah, it's uh, there's still a, a way to go, but we have, uh, for the first time, have a, 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 an offer on the table. There would be a lot of producers, especially in the Kimberley at the moment, who would love to get that payout, I am sure. Yes, uh it's uh, fair to say it's been a, a very long and very frustrating process, Matt. Um, however, we're very focused on on achieving an outcome, and uh, and there's a, a lot of effort going into uh, trying to draw this matter to a close, so people can uh, move on from this and uh, and achieve the compensation uh, owed to them. And how confident are you that this does get resolved in 2023? Uh, look, I'm I'm uh, I'm quietly confident. Um, we're uh, we're heartened by the signals that we're seeing coming from the government, and uh, and we appreciate the efforts to date. However, we've uh, we've there needs to be some movement on the figure. As Tracy Hayes, former chief executive of the NT Cattlemen's Association and facilitator of the live export class action, so the Commonwealth has made an initial offer, but that offer has been rejected. Tracy Hayes quietly confident of being able to get a result in 2023. Yeah, my name's Nick Ferrica from Road Trains of Australia and I've just unloaded here at the Berrimer Export Yard. And when I'm cruising along, I always tune into the country hour. That's the way to be. And if you're on, say, the Stuart Highway and are about to run out of reception, you can always download our podcast later on and listen at a time that suits you. Now, the federal government says there are now 35,000 workers from the Pacific employed in Australia. 35,000 of them, and they're working across various sectors such as farming, hospitality and aged care. Minister Pat Conroy says while some countries hope to send more workers to Australia this year, 
there are some Pacific nations that are reluctant to be sending any more citizens. The Minister spoke with Kath Sullivan about the progress of what's called the Pacific Australia Labor Mobility Program, better known as PALM. We set a target of getting 35,000 Pacific workers into the country by the end of June 2023. And in fact, we achieved that in December last year. And to give you an idea of the context of that growth, when we came to government in May, there were 24,000 Pacific workers. So to get to 35,000 means we've grown the scheme by almost 50% in seven months. Is that fair context, though? I mean, the former government was dealing with COVID lockdowns. There were no flights in and out of the country, for example. Isn't that a little bit misleading? Well, it's certainly the case in 2021 and 2020 that the borders were closed, but the borders were well and truly opened in 2022. So I think it's really important to understand that this scheme has grown by almost 50%. And that's great news for industry in terms of filling their temporary labour shortages. But as importantly, it's great news for Pacific nations and their uh, citizens. The average worker uh, sends back $15,000 a year, and that's in the context of a third of people living on $1,000 a year. So this is lifting people, families and communities out of poverty. So of that 35000 there'd be perhaps 500 in aged care? Uh, the goal is 500 so by the end of this year. There's two trials uh, pre-existing of about 80 workers and there's the goal of another 500 workers. Tourism is there in hospitality, but it's fair to say that the two most significant industries are fruit picking and meat processing. Mm. And as I said, it, it's great to fill labour shortages, but also equally great to skill up Pacific workers and send home money. When we look at food processing and agriculture, uh, the food supply chain alliance, I think it's called, that covers Mm. basically the growing of the food, Mm. the picking it, the packing it and putting it into Mm. some retail stores. Mm. That industry group has suggested they're short 170,000 workers. To say you've stumped up 35,000 doesn't quite touch the sides when you then take into account the other industries Mm. that those Pacific workers have got to service. Yeah, well, my advice is that that, that figure is much broader than just agriculture. So I think that's important context. And of course, we're investing in programs to get Australians into the, uh, those industries, uh, uh, both uh, uh, promotional programs and 465,000 fee-free TAFE places. So our, our first choice should always have Australians working in those positions, but where they can't uh, or choose not to do those roles, then we should look at uh, people from the Pacific family who can do those roles, get skills, uh, developed and send money home to their families. And that's what we're doing and that's why we're ramping up the program. Are you hearing concerns from Pacific nations that Australia is draining it of its talent and and its labour? The the dominant theme is uh, tremendous enthusiasm for this scheme. Like the the 35,000 workers cumulatively are sending back around 500 million Australian dollars a year to their economies. They are literally lifting their communities out of poverty and they're getting skills. For example, I met Georgie in Vanuatu who worked in a flower farm in my electorate and has now used the money to set up um, housing affordable developments in Vanuatu. Christelle's another worker. She set up a female-run um, uh, farm in Vanuatu. I met with Joseph and Jared, who come back from Meatworks to set up um, businesses in the Solomon Islands. So it's lifting people out of poverty, giving them skills and training workers in areas like aged care. So overwhelmingly, it's positive. Uh, some countries are probably reached to the point where the 
they will choose not to send many more workers. Uh, and ultimately, the country where the workers come from decide how many workers they send, and it's their right to uh, slow down a bit. Which nations are pulling up Uh Well, it's, it's well known that Samoa... Uh, uh, had a freeze last year while they conducted a review. So it's fair to say some of the Polynesian countries like Samoa and Tonga have very high penetration rates. So, for example, uh, Tonga out of a population of 100,000, there's about 5,000 working in Australia. So that's a very high percentage of their uh, uh, citizens. But other countries are really keen to wrap it up. So, for example, Papua New Guinea, with a population of at least 10 million, has about 1,500 workers in Australia. And when I was in Papua New Guinea with the Prime Minister two weeks ago, uh, we signed a, an MOU or, or a statement setting a goal of 8,000 Papua New Guinean workers coming into Australia. So some countries are probably keen to uh, slow down, but other countries are very keen to ramp it up. And of these 35,000 workers who have come from the Pacific to work for an approved employer, mm. people may not realise, but the government signs off on a program mm. um, agreeing to the ter terms and conditions mm. of that employment, seeing that employment linked mm. with a specific employer. How many of these 35,000 workers have left their approved employer and will run away, for want of a better term? Well, a, a very small number have what's called disengaged from their employer. There's a range of reasons for that. Uh, probably the, the dominant reason is not uh, being completely satisfied with the wages and conditions that they're living under. Uh, importantly, and let me assure your, your listeners and viewers that uh, Pacific workers uh, have full access to Australian uh, workplace laws and paying conditions. So, for example, if they're directly employed by a company and that company has an enterprise agreement, they'll get paid exactly the same wage as an Australian doing that job. And that's very important. And we've increased protections for workers uh, uh, under this scheme and we'll keep doing that to make sure that we stamp out exploitation that occurs. Two deductions. Now, this is the cost that a palm worker expenses. Of course, it's expensive to bring somebody from the Pacific to Australia to work on a farm or in a hospitality setting. Um, we know that there are workers who are paying back the cost of their accommodation, their flights, insurances, other costs associated with that travel. In some instances, leaving workers with as little as $100 a week. Are you concerned about that? Is that something that you're looking at? Or is that, in fact, how the, how the system was designed to work? Uh, well, there's two separate issues. One is legitimate deductions for things such as the airfare to come over and accommodation. And it's really important that they're explained transparently. And one of the issues is that sometimes workers don't fully ex uh, understand what those deductions are going to be. So that's a really important issue that we're addressing and it's one of the reasons we've transferred oversight to the Department of Workplace Relations to make sure that that is all done properly. Other things are about um, working on improvements to the scheme such as uh, guaranteeing a minimum um, take-home pay. That, that's an initiative that we're exploring at the moment so that workers understand truly that after the deductions this is the absolute minimum amount of money that they're going to take home. But the important thing is that in... in Would that know, be more or less than $100? Uh, well, I'm not going to get into um, hypotheticals while we're looking at uh, policy options. But importantly, I need to assure your viewers that the overwhelming majority of cases, workers are treated respectfully. 
they're paid appropriately for their job. They're paid the same as the Australian uh, workplace relations law right. specifies, and they're sending home very significant amounts of money and developing skills that are transforming their lives. So this is a positive day. Yes, there are things that we can improve on, but this is a scheme that I think is a critical part of our outreach into the Pacific. When I meet with Pacific Prime Ministers and Ministers, they're very enthusiastic about the scheme because they understand how transformational it is for their nation. Pat Conroy, who is Australia's Minister for the Pacific and International Development, speaking there to Kath Sullivan. It is 14 to 1. You are tuned into the Country Hour. Things are starting to dry out a bit in central Australia, although there is a flood watch still in place for the Barclay region as we go to air this afternoon. Floods can happen in a flash. That's why you need a proper emergency plan in place. Learn more about the history of flooding and flood warnings in your local area. Check your insurance. Have an emergency kit ready to go and identify an evacuation route and shelter for you and your family. Prepare, act and survive with ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. Your emergency broadcaster. Yes, so a flood watch in place for the Barclay District. According to the Bureau, rainfall totals of 30 to 40 millimetres with isolated falls of 80 millimetres are possible for the remainder of today across the flood watch area. And that rainfall may cause significant water level rises in rivers and creeks and prolonged overland flooding and ponding and that roads may become impassable. Some communities and homesteads may become isolated. Check road conditions, please before travelling. So a flood watch in place for the Barclay. We'll be speaking to the Weather Bureau at five past one. As always, if you have a question that you'd like to put to the Bureau, send it through on the text number, which is 0487 991057. Just repeating a flood watch in place for the Barclay. G'day, my name's Will Weir from WTW Brahmins. I live out at Amaru Station and I've just started my own Brahmin stud. You're listening to the NT Country Hour. It is 9 to 1. Two power stations in Alice Springs, which normally run on gas, have instead been using expensive backup diesel because of a union stout. It's estimated something like 2 million litres of diesel have unnecessarily been used since about November, December. Electrical Trades Union NT organiser David Hayes explained the situation this morning to Adam Steer. What the action actually is, to explain it for you, is a ban on dual fuel trips. So these power stations would predominantly run on gas. Um, At times, the engines trip off gas and then switch over to diesel. And in those, when those situations occur, our members aren't switching them back to gas. Majority of the time they run on gas as it's more efficient and it's the cheaper option. So this, uh, this protected action, this work ban, is designed to put pressure on, on, on territory generation and the government to come to the table and bargain uh, in a manner that gets this agreement over the line. How long have they been running on diesel for, David? So we've been using these bans since about uh, October last year. But after Christmas um, at Owen Springs, it's been pretty much continuous. Has this type of protected industrial action from union members happened before in the Northern Territory? Not this type in the Northern Territory, no. Is there, um, is there a precedent uh, elsewhere of, of this type of protected action anywhere else in the country? 
not that I'm aware of, Adam, but why, we, why we're going down the path of this type of action is to put the pressure on the government and, and get them to realise the cost of this action and come to the table, but not to disrupt the public in the actions that we are taking. So that's why it's been designed. It keeps the power on. Um, it puts the pressure on the government to get to the table because it's costing them extra money to run these stations. And, and you know, we would have expected there would have been more urgency in this bargaining process um, with these bans being put on place. We've had, since the bans have been put on, we've had four bargaining meetings, which you could probably total into about eight or 10 hours uh, in that, you know, up until now. And I've never seen such an inefficient bargaining process uh, in all the bargaining that I've done. What do you mean, inefficient? Well, if we were bargaining, if we had protected industrial action, say, with a mining company or someone like that, uh, they would fly in the right people. You would have decision makers in the room. Uh, you would sit down for days on end into the night if you had to to get a deal done. Um, here with the with the Northern Territory Government um, and the OCPE, we have a meeting for a couple of hours, you know, and then we have a meeting for a couple of hours two weeks later. We've uh, let the government know and the OCPE know that we're available at any time to sit down and meet. But this, this process is just long and drawn out. Um, and unfortunately, there's costs involved in it. And if you look at the other unions involved in these public sector bargaining um, processes at the moment, uh, their actions would also be costing the government, um, I, would, I would argue, millions of dollars um, in keeping prisons, you know, staffed and et cetera, et cetera. Well, I mean, let's go to your situation first of all, and I'm just doing some quick maths here, right? The terminal gate price of diesel sits at around $1.91 a litre in Darwin. So 2 million litres of unnecessary diesel is coming close to $4 million to Northern Territory taxpayers. What do you say to taxpayers right across the Northern Territory that your stoush is costing them $4 million? Well, I would ask them, as we do, to be questioning the boards of these organisations, the CEOs and the Treasurer, um, for the lack of oversight and urgency in this process. Like, why aren't we at the table thrashing this out? Why isn't there an urgency? Why aren't decision-makers in the room? What do, our, what do our members have to do to get some um, actual, actual focus on this process and get it moving properly? These deals could have been done, Adam. David Hayes, he's an organiser with the Electrical Trades Union NT. Territory Generation did not provide the ABC with details on the cost of diesel or gas, but in a statement it said the action at these power stations would not increase power bills for Territorians. You can read more about this story right now if you jump online and search for ABC News. Now, still on the topic of gas, the Australian Electoral Commission has released its yearly list of political donations data. The information covers money donated to political parties before the 2022 federal election. And fossil fuel companies, they feature heavily. They were forking out a fair bit of cash for donations. Dan Fitzgerald's been taking a look at this. What companies we're handing over big dollars to political parties, Dan. Well, there's a few that operate uh, here in the Northern Territory, Matt. Uh, Tamboran Resources, which is exploring for gas in the Beetaloo Basin, gave $200,000 in donations across Labor, Liberals and the National Parties. Mm -hmm. uh, oil and gas giant Santos made $150,000 in donations to Labor, Liberals and the Nationals. So did Inpex, uh, gave one hundred fifty grand to Labor and Liberals. 
Um, the oil and gas lobby group, APIA, made a big donation as well, $110,000 in donations to, across the major parties. Yep. Um, the Minerals Council of Australia, $230,000 across Labor and Liberals. Gina Reinhart was in there as well with $24,000 to the Liberals. Um, and this is a really interesting one. Um, journalist Anthony Clan. Oh, yes, I read this. Yep. Um, yep. He's reporting that four of the nation's biggest fossil fuels giants, so Woodside, Santos, Chevron, Chevron and Whitehaven Coal, they collectively paid over 13,000 times in more in political donations than those companies paid in tax in 2020-21 financial year. Those four big companies, over 13,000 times more in the political donations than they paid in actual tax. That's right. Um, I haven't got it in front of me here, but I think that article had uh, Chevron making over $12 billion and paying $30 in tax. Yeah, that's right. Whoever their tax man is, I want their number. (laughs) I want their number. We're getting all kinds of text messages regarding that previous song by John Denver, uh, Dan, and you received a phone call about it as well. Yeah. Calypso, not about a mango. (laughs) Not about a mango. Uh, Keith called up to let us know that he thinks the song Calypso mm-hmm. is about Jacques Cousteau's boat. He's one of his most famous boats. Ross in Bachelor agrees that John Denver's song was about a ship sailed by Jacques Cousteau, the famous French oceanographer. Yeah, so he was um, a, an oceanographer, a filmmaker as well. He made a lot of films about life underwater and in reefs, mm-hmm. and he was also a co-inventor of scuba, the scuba gear um, breathing underwater apparatus. Yeah, right. And he's, and he's and, got a John Denver song. And uh, one of his most famous boats uh, was called Calypso. The Calypso. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Dan. I know you're getting very excited to come on to the country hour in the second half and, and share with us the glorious news of the radioactive capsule being found. There is some great, great news there. <laughs> <laughs> See you soon. Uh, our text number of the country hour is 0487991057. Bart says, didn't Hendo pay E&I $4 billion back in 2009 for unlimited gas for 25 years? And now it appears Eva Lawler has wasted even more money paying for diesel on top of the gas that we already paid for. Can she get nothing right? Reckons Bart. 0487991057. Still plenty to come. On today's Country Hour, I personally can't wait to talk about worms. But now it's news time, one o'clock. Hello, I'm Debbie. Hello, I'm Benji. Hello, I'm Katie. You're listening to the Country Hour. Matt Brown with you this afternoon. Tell me, have you ever thought about packing in your day job and becoming a worm farmer? So he said, do you want to buy a farm and start growing worms? And so I came home and have a chat with Ellie and we said, well, let's give it a go. Yeah, why not? Pack it in, move hundreds of kilometres to another region and become a worm farmer. You'll meet this couple before 1.30. They didn't just buy a worm farm, they are expanding. It's a seriously big business, a range of customers. Very interesting. I hope you can stick around for that. And if you are running a worm farm in the Northern Territory, love to hear from you. Love to hear from you. Our text number is 0487 
if you'd be happy to have the Country Hour swing by your worm operation, we're intrigued. We really are. 0487 991057 is the text here at the Country Hour. Let's go to the Weather Bureau. Sally Cutter is there this afternoon. Uh, Sally, worm farming, is that something you dabble in? I don't think I've ever, I haven't even had a worm farm, a little tiny sort of bench top size worm farm. So mm. I, don't, I don't know. I haven't really thought about it because they're important. And um, yeah, oh, yeah. And as we're about to learn, there's a, just a range of customers for worms. Uh, it can be quite lucrative. I've got to say, that in terms of the brand family, no, it's basically just the big compost bin out the back that you know. If uh, if you wanted to go fishing, you could probably reliably put the shovel down and get a few worms, but that's about it. That's about it. Uh, they're magical little critters. Let's talk weather. Things seem to be drying out a bit in southern parts of the Territory, but there still is a flood watch in place for the Barkley, yes? Yes, certainly. We've had a big line of storms so through the or heavy showers through the to along, along the boundary between the Barker and the Carpentaria district extending up towards whatever this morning the they eased off a bit but they're now starting to fire up just in the southern parts of the Carpentaria district and to the south we still haven't quite got the dry air into the Barkley yet so that it's starting to bubble away through the Barkley a little bit in the in the Gregory still but that's certainly much smaller than what we're seeing down in the Barkley but if you're looking to Tanami most of the Simpson, Leicester, it's, it's currently it's clear skies down there. So it, things are sunshines. Hopefully that will allow the roads to dry out a bit, so to just enable that for people to to move about again. In the north, we're seeing the little monsoonal squalls race across the Arafura Sea. We do have a strong wind morning out for the Arafura and Gove Peninsula coastal waters areas for tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So the winds are picking up a little bit in the north. And we're also just seeing those sort of squally showers or heavy showers coming in onto the west coast. Yeah, it looks like what air, peppermint yardy places like that yeah. are having a wet afternoon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, they're going to have a wet afternoon because they're also on the end of that trough. So they've got sort of coming up from both outsides. They've got the trough sort of sitting in that air, and then they've also got the the weather coming in off the Timor Sea. Yeah. Um, can you share with us some of the best rainfall figures? From those areas that were previously under the flood watch, like the VRD and the Barkley and, and the centre? Yeah, the, there's been some pretty good rainfall totals. The, to 9am today, Tennant Creeks had 65 millimetres. Dashwood Crossing, 65, 63.5. Ali Krung Bore, 48.5. Bradshaw, 46. Saddle Creek had, had 40 millimetres. Ali at 39. Upper Townsend Creeks. Nearly 33 millimetres. Helen Springs, 32. Mount Stowe's also had 32. Some Gawley, this is up in the, the dailies, 26.5. The Bailey's Grave, 20.5. Victoria River Downs, 20.4 millimetres. The Armstrong Rivers had 19. So there's been some pretty good falls there, the, which given the sparsity of a lot of the observation sites through there, certainly... So it suggests that there were some pretty good falls out through that area. Hmm. And it was mentioned yesterday that perhaps we may see a, a weak monsoon influence in the top end tomorrow. Is that still the case? 
Yeah, it's still the case. We're starting to see a little bit of a sort of monsoon. Sort of the, we're starting to feel monsoony around the top end now. The, it's just going to get a little bit more active as that trough really gets into the top end and, and moves across. It should end up near the north coast on Saturday, so that's going to allow the dry southeasterly winds coming right up into the, particularly the middle levels coming up into the NT, so into top end. So that will quieten things down. It's just a case of, sort of getting that trough over us where we're going to see sort of an increase in shower and storm activity and then, then it'll ease off for the weekend. Okay, and yeah, a, a relatively dry sort of weekend, but uh, looking a bit further beyond, any uh, any any goss for us, Sally Cutter, in terms of uh, some wet season action? Well, certainly, we've, with that trough sitting near the north coast, we end up with these really humid easterlies coming across, and and Queensland's got a, a fair bit of humidity out there You that's going to be brought into the Territory from Monday. So we're going to see the showers and storms return to practically all the NT, apart from maybe the the Lassiter district in the early parts of the week, early to midweek. And it's, it's going to be sort of showers and storms, so it may not be, maybe back to the case of you see it, but not actually directly experience it. But we are going to see the the showers and storms, of, the, the chance increase as we go into next week. Okay. Thanks for your time this afternoon. That's okay. Uh, Sally Cutter there at the Weather Bureau. It's 11 past one on the country hour. Just before the one o'clock news, you were hearing about these two power stations in Alice Springs, which normally run on gas, but instead have been using expensive backup diesel, something like two million litres of diesel has been unnecessarily used because of a union stoush on the text number 0487 1057. Rod says... I'm not commenting on the merits or otherwise of the power station issue. Let's just stay with the facts, says Rod. It hasn't cost anybody $4 million, says Rod. It's only cost the difference of the cost of the diesel over that time and the cost of the gas they would have used, unless they have to pay for it when they don't use it. Regardless, the striking workers will be paying many more times tax than I will be, says Rod. And furthermore, using environmental outcomes as a bargaining chip for such purposes is despicable. 0487991057 is our text number here at the Country Hour. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au. Proudly supported by the Kandinan Group and ABC Rural. One of the Territory's biggest heli-mustering companies says it's having a busier-than-usual wet season. Most years, the wet is a chance for helicopter companies to get on top of the maintenance and do some other jobs in the hangar. But heli-muster NT's Sam Chisholm says they've been spending a lot of time in the air. The wet season's been quite busy for us. Normally, um, normally it's just maintenance and and a few bore runs and things like that. But the engineers have been really busy as as expected. But um, the the skeleton crew of pilots we've had on have been uh, really busy as well. So normally they get a bit of a reprieve, but they're all flying, including Christmas Day. So they deserve a bit of a break in the coming months. Yeah, what's been keeping everyone so busy? 
Oh, just the rain about um, people shifting cattle as as creeks come up and lakes fill and that sort of stuff. Shifting cattle around to give country uh, a bit of a spell. Um, people want to go and check where the water's been and see where the grass is growing. And um, there's been quite a lot of bore runs we've been doing as well. So roads that you can't get to, but you might still have to start a motor to to keep the nest going. Um, we've got three fixed swing guys who have been really busy doing uh, freight and, and patient travel so bring people in from communities so they can still get to their appointments um, so yeah it's it's been been pretty pretty not not crazy busy but busier than usual um, and yeah the country's looking fantastic and green grass so everyone's in a in a jovial mood yeah is it looking green right right across the top end yeah it is uh, everywhere that i've been i was down at halls creek and um, kalkaringi the other day and it, it looks fantastic there they're having a bumper season all of the victoria river district looks really good especially off the back of um, a couple of pretty tough years uh, the the largest rainfall vrd got last year was um, hardly more than an inch and got 200 mils in a few days so uh, it wasn't wasn't widespread flooding like they've had at fitzroy but good rain and dams are full and the country's um yeah the country's looking good uh, across the barclay it's looking fantastic as well there's sort of a bit of the sturt plateau which is wet but not soaking so they could do with a bit more but the in general everywhere i've been looks fantastic sounds like it's better to fly over than uh, drive you'd probably be getting bogged <laughs> yeah absolutely and a good time of the year to be flying around with all the waterfalls pumping so um, it's pretty special special time of the year up here after a bit of rain why do you think it's busier than than usual for you for you this year i think just off the run of a few uh few dry years this is probably back to a bit more normality um the season the mustering season i would anticipate will get really busy after easter whereas uh, which is april this year last year it was sort of closer to the end of february we're in full swing so we had to pull pilots back early and, and they get a shorter break so everyone gets more tired at the end of the year and it just sort of compounds so i guess um yeah it's, it's probably back to a bit more normality i would say and what do the next few months look like for you at Helimuster getting ready for the, the coming mustering season? Yeah, engineers, like I said, they've got a few rebuilds to finish off and um, a few hundred hourlies. They, they just get the fleet looking tip-top and, and everything ready to go to work. So uh, they've got a busy couple of months. We'll spell a couple of the crew who've been on um, over the Christmas period and the rest of the crew will start to trickle back um, by sort of easter we anticipating having everyone back on deck and ready to to be into it until november busy season ahead no doubt yeah i'd say so um cattle prices are still uh, still strong the all the cattle i've seen are, are looking really good so um yeah hopefully that that can be sustained and um generally when when there's good money for cattle people are people are busy um everyone has to brand all their calves so that that's always um always gonna be there and keep everyone everyone going but yeah anticipating a, a good year that is sam chisholm from helimuster nt speaking to max riley we wish all helicopter pilots a good year ahead 17 past one on the country hour <laughs> exciting news Radioactive capsule correspondent Dan Fitzgerald joins me in the studio. It's been found, Dan. It's been found. It has the needle in the haystack. Oh, even more than that, this <laughs> tiny, tiny capsule just 
eight millimetres by six millimetres. Uh, it has been found. Emergency services, they've been combing the roadsides after it rattled loose from a truck that was travelling from a mine in the Pilbara all the way to Perth. 1,400 kilometres. 1,400 kilometres worth of road. Uh, they didn't know where it was along that <laughs> along that roadside. Um, but yes, it has been found. Here's WA's Fire and Emergency Services Commissioner, Darren Clem, explaining just how they came across it. The capsule was located just south of Newman on the Great Northern Highway. It was two metres from the side of the road. The vehicle that identified it was travelling at 70 kilometres per hour when the specialist detection equipment picked up radiation emitted by the missing capsule. The search team then used portable detection equipment to locate the capsule. The Australian Defence Force is currently verifying the capsule using its serial number. A 20 metre hot zone has been set up around the capsule and it will be placed into a lead container to shield from radiation. That is Darren Clem. He's WA's Fire and Emergency Services Commissioner. So this capsule, it came from one of Rio Tinto's mines. Uh, the company said it's used as part of an industrial gauge, which is sort of common in the mining industry. Uh, Rio Tinto's Simon Trott, he said that the company would reimburse the WA state government for the costs of this big search that's been underway if it is asked to do so. Um, and he thanked all of those involved in the search. When you think about it, a pretty incredible recovery when you think of the distances involved and also the remoteness of, of the terrain. Uh, and I think that really speaks to the tenacity of all of those that were involved in, in the search. Of course, the simple fact is this device should never have been lost. We're sorry that that has occurred. And we're sorry for the concern that that has caused within the Western Australian community. There will be a full investigation into the circumstances that led to the loss of, of the capsule. Uh, and we need to learn from this to make sure that we make put in place additional controls to ensure that this never happens again. Simon Trott, he is Rio Tinto's Chief Executive of Iron Ore. It's been a roller coaster ride. Uh, Dan, thank you for taking us on it. Uh, no worries. And I'm just amazed they found it uh, as a cruise along at 70 kilometres an hour. Easy. It's happening right now. If you turn your head slightly on ABC News 24, a Perth reporter is telling this story. And the ABC, I assume, has spent money doing a 3D printing of what the capsule will look like to be able to show the audience how small it is. I didn't realise. Can, can the country get access to this 3D printer? I don't know what we do with it, but I can't believe we've got one. I'm sure he's it, holding it right now. Look at him, yeah, with his little 3D printed version of what the capsule looks like. If you find a reason to use one, Matt, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'll put my thinking hat on. Maybe a 3D printed worm farm. Are you into worm farming? Do you know anyone? We'd, we want to find a territory worm farmer. Yeah, not never, sort of backyard compost job like someone who's really getting into it. It would be good. Zero four eight seven double nine one zero five seven. We'll go and take a look at a really serious worm operation next. You are tuned into the country hour now. If someone came to you and said, "Hey, would you like to become a commercial worm farmer?" Would you say, "Oh, that sounds great. I'll just pull up stumps, travel hundreds of kilometres, and take up that opportunity." Well, as Jennifer Nichols discovered, that's exactly what Rowan and Ellie Watson did. And they haven't looked back. In fact, this farm is not just wriggling along, it is expanding. 
So we've got these lovely big covers that relate to the Western Sun. Rowan and Ellie Watson couldn't be prouder about having worms, millions of them. Oh, wow, you're scraping back the surface and it is just alive with worms. Yeah, so that's our harvesting technique. We use the food, we keep them at the top, and then from there we can harvest the worms. In 2014, the carpenter and his kindergarten teacher wife were working in Outback Cloncurry when his uncle posed a question that would change the course of their lives. I was down on holidays and he came and said to me, what are you doing when you finish out west? And I said, I don't know. He said, do you want to come grow worms? And I said, you've got to be crazy. That can't be a thing. But it is a thing. And Stephen Watson, an early adopter of commercial vermiculture in Australia, that's worm farming, convinced his nephew that he was serious. And he said at the rate it was growing and he only had a small block, so he could only get to a certain size and that was it. So he said, do you want to buy a farm and start growing worms? And so I came home and have a chat with Ellie and we said, well, let's give it a go. By the end of that year, the Watsons had packed up their lives, scouted for land and settled on a property at Stony Creek, not far from the Woodford Folk Festival site in Queensland. They started with just nine raised beds. Now they have 138 with recycled tin roofing, shade cloth and sprinklers to keep the worms moist and safe from ever optimistic predators. The cane toads and the birds are your biggest thieves. Especially on the warm nights and the humid nights like we've got right now, a lot of the big fellas will just sort of poke their heads out and go for a bit of a look around. And when they do that a lot of time the cane toads are waiting for them. So we spend a lot of nights with a bucket and a glove and torch and yeah, try and minimise those numbers off. Their business, Rural Earthworms, grows reds, tigers and African night crawlers for domestic composting worm farms. We collect all these animal manures, it gets pasteurised so we can burn off any weed seed or any sort of bad pathogens and then we start the composting process and then basically at the right time we can put it into a mixer we mix in lime and cornmeal we feed our beds every friday harvesting packing and deliveries take another two days the family supplies a national company that transports their worms to bunnings stores throughout northern new south wales and queensland householders use them to keep kitchen vegetable scraps out of landfill composting worms convert organic waste into nutrient-rich garden fertilizer in the form of worm tea and castings or worm poo. Most of your reds and your tigers are normally only about 75 millimetres long, whereas your night crawlers can go 150 mil up to sort of 250, if not, I have seen bigger. I've seen them as long as my arm. <laughs> Business has boomed, spiking during the pandemic. Every week they consistently sell around 150 large and 120 small boxes of earthworms. The last few weeks have been both exciting and intense for the couple. Their uncle retired and 58 new worm beds have been carefully relocated from his farm. Mr Watson never imagined that business would get this big. I kind of always just assumed that it would sort of stay as a bit of a hobby to work in with my carpentry, but once it sort of got going and we started getting a lot of beds and that demand was there, we sort of found that, OK, well, it wasn't really worth doing the carpentry anymore. The worms needed the time. So we just sort of, that's when we started investing in more worm beds, more infrastructure, and just trying to keep up with it. And it's, it's been great. It's really, especially today, to look around and see all these worm beds in the new areas. Yeah, it's really amazing. They also collect worm castings and bag them for sale to locals. 18 kilos in a large bag and that's enough for about three square meters of garden. Mix it into about that top sort of 10 centimeters of soil because that's your root zone for a lot of your veggies and your flowers. Basically the nutrients from there will spread out.
we did a test in one of these bags and it was a year later and it was still fine. It was just put up in the cupboard, out of the sun and yeah, perfect. Ellie Watson manages marketing and orders as well as helping her husband with social media. A lot of people don't even know that worm farmers exist so it's always interesting talking to different people and helping them with their worms and their gardens. And I get to pass all the interesting questions on to Rowan. I call him the worm guru. Earthworms are hermaphrodites which means they have both male and female sexual organs. Your reds and tigers, they will have to find a similar size worm. So they can't mate with a worm that's not the same size because they won't line up together. And when you find a pair of worms, they look like someone's tied them in a knot. Being hermaphrodites, they both will exchange sperm for their eggs. So they've both got eggs, they've both got sperm. So they swap and then they go off in their own directions and basically lay their eggs as they travel. African nightcrawler worms, which are also popular as fish bait, can produce cocoons with or without copulation through an asexual reproduction process. The term is parthenogenesis, so they can actually fertilise their own egg. Ellie Watson, what do you like about being a worm farmer? The lifestyle is definitely the best. We get to work from home and it's different. It's a nice break from teaching. And yeah, and it's lovely that we can involve the whole family. And speaking of family, you're expecting (laughs) very soon, hopefully within the next three weeks. And you've got two littlies already? Yes, so Jack's four and Molly will be two. They must just absolutely love having all this area to be able to run around. Yes, they're um, naked and wild and free children, I think. (laughs) That's the best way to describe them. Yeah, no, they're great and it's such a beautiful lifestyle for them. They always help with the worms and lots of animals to look after and, yeah, just freedom. That is Ellie and Rowan Watson from Rural Earthworms in Queensland speaking there to Jennifer Nichols here in the Northern Territory. I wonder who's in charge of the Territory's biggest worm farm. I am now on a mission to find out. Keep it rural. Keep it rural.